Coyote Edelstein here, your celeb expert and your celeb savant. Celeb Savant is a weekly entertainment show. We have long-form career retrospective type interviews with celebrities, singers, actors, and industry experts. Amy Stutt has packed a lifetime of experience into a 20-year career in the music business. She's seen life from both sides of that glamorous and unpredictable world, first as a teenage pop star, then as a mature artist and as a collaborator with some of the biggest names in the business. Growing up in a musical family with a pianist mother and a violinist father, also a conductor, who worked with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and Roy Orbison, Amy began writing music at the age of eight, teaching herself singing, piano, guitar and learning the oboe. By 12 years old, she had already recorded her first two demo albums, which would help her get signed at 14 to Polydor Universal, Sony BMG Publishing and managed by Simon Fuller. Still in her mid-teens, she had a string of hits with her first record, False Smiles, being certified gold in the UK. Her highest charting single, Misfit, reaching number six in the UK, and Just a Little Girl reaching number one on Radio Play in the US. Amy released two further solo records, My Paper Made Men in 2009, under indie label 19 Entertainment, with singles Furniture and Chasing the Light, followed ten years later by Happiest Girl in the Universe in 2019. Both albums received rave reviews across the board, the latter being awarded multiple five-star ratings and getting Rough Trade's coveted Wall of Fame bestsellers list. Amy is currently prepping her fourth studio album between working with other artists and producers as a top-line writer all around the world. Up next on Celebs Find, we've got Amy Stutt. Where do we find you in the world? How are you doing and what's happening in your life? Uh, I'm in the UK. I'm in Margate. I've been living here about... So nearly 10 years. Yeah. I'm, I'm good. I'm tired because uh, uh, I had a, just had a baby. So um, I'm quite tired, but um, I'm also working again now, doing music again now. I took a bit of time out because uh, I got postnatal depression. So I had to sure. take a little break, um, but I'm out of that now and mm. uh, back in the game. So Margate, is that like sort of a uh, little town in the UK? It's by the sea. Yeah. It's... It's been a lot in the press, or in the UK at least. I don't know anywhere else over the over the last fifteen years or so, just because a sort of initially a, a small crowd of creatives moved to the area. Okay. I know that a lot of places are kind of from Margate. Um, you know, uh, like Tracy Emin is from Margate, so I heard whisperings of something going on down here. Uh, just at a time when I just split from a partner I'd been with for a long time and, and I was sick of London and uh, it was giving me a lot of anxiety, just the kind of energy of it. And hmm. I needed to see some sky and some sea and some nature. And so I heard about it, visited it about two days later, uh, saw a for rent sign in a window in Old Town which is the sort of main hub or one of the main hubs now. Mm-hmm. But um, And two weeks later, I was living in Margate, but on my own. I didn't know a single person here and um, uh, and sort of had to rebuild my life. And a year later, I met my now husband. It's interesting because in South Africa, there's also a Margate, which is by oh, the really? sea. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Yeah, I'm telling you. So that's why I was asking because I was busy. I'm an EastEnders fanatic. I love EastEnders. And there was... <laughs> there was an episode where a couple of characters went to Margate and I was like, 
Surely that didn't come to South Africa. So that's oh. why I was asking you about it because it was an EastEnders and there's one in South Africa as well. So I just had to refine in my mind that there's one here and there. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that's crazy. No, I mean, it's gone through so many different transitions. If any Brits are listening to this, you know, they're probably sick of hearing about Margate this, Margate that. When it was originally built up, it was very affluent areas. So mm. the buildings are beautiful um and then it went through a stage where it became extremely um what's the word very poor and very um run down mm. and so it, it it sort of has that and then the properties were very very cheap so uh, a lot of young Londoner creatives or ind- independent uh could work from home Londoners and people from other places um started moving and buying up property in the area to um, start families because they've been priced out of London and so now there's like galleries everywhere and you know beautiful restaurants and uh, it's a lovely place to be and now to be honest it's too busy for me so like, we're thinking about moving so <laughs> okay so how far is Margate from London uh, it's about an hour and a half on the train um, if you're coming from East London it's an hour and a half by car you're okay. coming from West London, it's about two hours. Now let's rewind. Let's rewind. Out, re, we rewind it <laughs> to your story in the entertainment industry. So at what age, whether it was a child, teenager, whatever it was, to realize, okay, cool, I'm good at this. I want to be part of it. And how did that journey flow into where we are today? Okay, so I come from a musical family. Okay, My dad's quite a uh, famous, uh, well-known violinist and conductor, and my mum was a, the head of music at a school. Okay. So music was just something I grew up with. I listened to I woke. I don't remember a morning that I didn't wake up listening to my dad practicing on his Stradivarius violin and doing concerto parts. And I always loved music and I always loved acting. Those were the two things that I had the greatest passion and writing as well, English, right? Uh, in, English, what do you call it? English lit? I mean, yeah, right. yeah, um, yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, so whenever I was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up, age four or five, I'd be like, I, I'm going to be a, not maybe not the fame, famous bit, but the, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be a songwriter or I'm going to be an actress. Mm. Those were always my answers. Then about sort of even starting from a bit, I had this little cassette recorder that me and my friends, we used to make up songs uh, when I was maybe five or six years old. I've got like old recordings of this tiny little girl going like, ba, ba, bida, ba, ba, bida. <laughs> and then I started seriously writing by about the age of eight I was I was playing something at the piano and my dad came in and he was like, have you thought about making up a melody to that? Um, and so I started making up a melody to it and he was like, well, why don't you put some lyrics to that melody? And so that was the beginning of me writing. And so by the age of about 12, I had about 40 songs that were oh, wow. completed that I thought were pretty good. And I, I used to get bullied a lot so yeah. I I used to kind of spend my break times and things like that just in the music room just just practicing basically I got very sick with a, a bone eating infection in my hip was the first time I got sick my life has been very much kind of sick well sick well sick well mm-hmm. as I was recovering from that and, and learning to walk again my my dad was like oh you know why don't you go into this studio and and record some of your songs and make an album age 12 I made two demo albums of like six tracks each and I started giving away and selling these albums 
so so business minded but like <laughs> selling albums to friends at school and they would then pass them play them to their parents and their parents were like oh have you this is kid at my daughter's school my daughter's school is is writing these songs don't you think they're great and it was being passed around a lot and it just happened to get passed to like the right person at the right moment and they happened to have started the company 19 with Simon Fuller. If you don't know who Simon Fuller is, was the manager of the Spice Girls. Yes. Um, what was the first um, pop idol? That's it. Uh, and, you know, even Annie Lennox and Amy Winehouse. And so, yeah, so that's the guy that heard it. And it just happened that at the time he was looking for, for a, a character for a TV show called I Dream, who was called Amy from the South of England, which is where I was brought up by the sea on the south of England, who wrote her own songs, who was kind of grungy and gothy, which I was. And that was the character he was searching for. So we got a random phone call out of the blue from this guy, Simon Fuller, which we thought was a joke. (laughs) We thought, who is this? This isn't real. Like, you know, and he was like, hey, uh, uh, I, I really like the songs. Could Amy maybe write a song for the TV program, I Dream. So I wrote this song called I Dream. And when he heard that, he was like, okay, I really want to meet Amy. So I went up to London and suddenly I was like, you know, I mean, I had my hair in my face and a hoodie <laughs> up and and I was incredibly intimidated because suddenly I was in this glitzy, shiny office building with where all the women were like, gorgeous and but like razor sharp minded and yes. um I go into this room and meet this guy who to me is ancient because I'm a child <laughs> basically yes. uh, whereas he's probably like my age now um and you know there's awards everywhere and I'm and he's talking to me about my music and I'm like you know barely able to string a sentence together <laughs> he must have liked me but he so he he was like hey you know um do you want to go into the studio with this guy that we're working with called Yak Bondi and and do some writing and see what you come up with and I was like yeah that sounds great I'll do it so I did the studio session with um the the writing session with Yak and we wrote two songs uh one was called Kick Me and the other song was called Just a Little Girl I was just turning 14 so I was like 30 13, just about to turn 14. When Simon heard Just a Little Girl, he was like, right, I want to sign Amy. And so suddenly, and these are the days when deals were big advances. Still, this is way before streaming, way before anything like that. So I got offered a seven album deal with a publishing deal with Sony BMG. I think a year later, I was there was like an additional recording deal with Polydor Universal. So overnight, my life changed. Uh, I It was six different schools before I was 15, just because I was kind of like a, quite tr- a troubled mm. wild child. Lots of drug taking, lots of bad behavior, and lots of difficulties with mental health, which I didn't know at the time was yes. because I was bi- bipolar. So uh, that wasn't discovered until my 20s. So when I was young, I was just a wild child. Suddenly my life kind of changed overnight and I'd, I'd left. I walked out of the last school that I was in. I just walked out the doors and I said I wasn't going to ever go back to that school. And I think my, because I'd 
didn't really fit into the mold of schooling systems my parents kind of agreed to it and so I went to a tutoring college just to finish my GCSEs um and that was like two three days a week and then the rest of the week and the weekend I would travel up to London and stay with um a good friend of mine uh Katri Drummond who had been the woman who had started the company with Simon Fuller okay and I worked with and I wrote with co-writers and got my experiences of writing in a, in a studio environment. And that's how the album was made. And then in about 2002, my first single came out, which was Just a Little Girl. And I can't remember how that charted it, but it was, it was in the top 10 or might have been like 10 or 11 or something like that. And then the following year, Misfit came out in 2003 along with the album for Smiles, the first album. And the album, I think, went to 18 in the UK. It went gold in the UK. And the single went to six in the charts, I think. I mean, I remember turning up my GCSEs in, um, like, this, like, blacked-out limousine-type <laughs> car. Because my life was so different. Like suddenly, suddenly I'd gone from this sort of like girl that no one really wanted to hang out with and kind of weird girl um, playing her songs to suddenly like this very juxtapositioned life of like one minute I'm doing these really fancy things that seem very big and very scary. And the next minute I'm doing, I've just got my normal life and I'm, Mm. it's smaller and it's safe and it's, you know, and I remember the the only way that I was able to cope with the enormity of what was happening, like my first gig, for example, was in front of 20,000 people. And I was a, a kid, you know, I was like, I just turned 15. So. Okay. And it was televised and it was with a full orchestra. And I, you know, had barely had any time to rehearse with them. I think it was like an hour rehearsal oh, with wow. them. And, I, and even then I wanted to cut it short because I felt like, you know, who am I to be taking up these amazing musicians time Mm. and also I was used to my dad's conducting style which is very exact and some conductors are very swoopy with their arms okay and this this conductor was very swoopy so I didn't really know when I was supposed to be coming in when I was doing the piano track so they didn't televise that version (laughs) they televised the one where I wasn't at the piano and I was just working with the mic and striking around the set stage you know and then my first tv was top of the pops you know and i was um and then it was blue peter and then it was you know like i was just working 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 um and doing all this really big stuff and people started recognizing me and and i didn't like it i i did not enjoy the fame side of things Mm. it wasn't what i had gone into it I've fallen in love with writing music and being an artist and getting to express myself and the things that I was going through through those mediums and so I was very very much very anxious and very much didn't enjoy the pressure I guess I came across as if it didn't phase me uh, because I came across quite ballsy with quite a lot of attitude but that was my way of covering up uh, the the terror that I felt and also I had to kind of convince myself as if it wasn't happening. So, but what happens in those situations is like, it's like you put a lid on yes. a pressure cooker mm. and at some point that thing is going to go off, right? Yeah, explode. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, it didn't explode yes. until my early 20s uh, when I had written my second album, uh, which was called My Paper Made Men. I have worked with some fabulous 
uh, writers over the years and I'm so grateful. I'm just so grateful for working with them. They taught, I learned so much. Um, and I'm actually thinking at some point it'd be really nice to put out an album of my really early recordings, those demo albums, because they're just, there's something about them. There's obviously something that Simon saw in them as well. Um, just this kid, you know, right. Innocent, the innocence of. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I wrote and recorded, um, my second album and then I got very, I started to get quite sick. The drug taking was getting to the point where, and obviously this was all very hidden from the public. Simon was very good and 19 was very good at protecting their artists. Mm. I was, I was put through like rigorous, media training so that I wouldn't let slip. Oh, I went to this illegal rave or, Oh, I uh, took drugs the other day or any, any, even smoking. I wasn't allowed, you know, I mean, I smoked from the age of 13 till a few years ago until I had a baby. I was trying to have a baby. Yeah. I was very well sort of insulated. So people didn't really know that that was going on. I don't think so, but it was getting to a point where my brain was really not coping with the stress and I had had an abortion and many partners that were cheating on me like it seemed to be that I was just picking guys that were cheating or sort of not treating me very well yes and I in turn was not treating them probably very well yeah. either but I was quite troubled you know uh and then when I got to I think I was 22 I had a nervous breakdown and that's when it was literally like I had this like elastic band in my mm-hmm. brain that had got so tight that it just snapped. And all of a sudden I was like hallucinating stuff. I always used to have um, audible hallucinations, but I just thought I was a genius. (laughs) What do you mean by that? (laughs) So um, it is actually like a symptom of bipolar. It can be. Um, Like some people will hear voices and thank God I don't. And and thank God I don't don't get that. So I don't get like people or people talking to me or things like that. I get instruments or melodies. Oh, okay. Okay. I understand. And, and sometimes it's underneath my eardrum rattling and I can physically feel my eardrum moving from the sound of it. Oh my God. Okay. It's so weird. Yeah. yeah. And it, it often like it's, it, it sometimes happens to me now just every now and then uh, before I go to sleep where I'm somewhere, but I'm a sort of in a dream state. But, yes. And then suddenly these trumpets will be like, <laughs> and I'll jump. And you know, at the time, I was like, I'd be in a nightclub and I'd hear people singing. I'd be looking around for who the people were that were singing, and no one would be there. So yeah. when I was younger, I was just like, oh well, this is just. I'm just going to quickly record this on my, on my dictaphone. I had a little dictaphone, um, and I'll use it in a song. Yeah. So I, when I got sick, when I had the breakdown, I started seeing things. So mm. I I would see. Like a guy, there was one point there was this guy like running around my room. Every time I opened my eyes, he was in a different part of my room. I mean, it was really scary. And I just kept crying all the time, like just bursting into tears and crying. And I didn't know why. I didn't know what was, what was happening to me. I started getting like terrible panic attacks and Mm. I, and I didn't even know what a panic attack was or felt like at the time. So I didn't even know it was a panic attack until. My dad was like, it sounds like you're having panic attacks. And then there was a very tumultuous time of about 10 years where, you know, it got really, really bad. And it was bad, but I was writing about it. 
Yes. It was very strange because that's the thing that I was always turning to. I always had my lyric book or my mm. book that I was writing my thoughts in or writing short stories or poems or whatever in. And so I began documenting my experiences. Basically, uh, at one point, I tried to commit suicide. Okay. And yeah. sorry, this is so heavy. I know you no, I know you're like, no, I'm, I'm, I really I'm, like they, conversation. No, um, it, I appreciate your honesty. So you, uh, thank you so much for your honesty. Yes. I can only tell my story. And that's then, perfect. That's all I can do. So. That's perfect. And we love authentic stories. So that's perfect. So, yeah. So I, I had... um gotten to the point where I was literally skin and bones I think I was like six or seven stone in weight and my forehead was covered in sores and stuff from me obsessively rubbing my forehead yes 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 sit and sort of like just sit in one place all day long smoking cigarettes by the back door um and anyway I I tried to take an overdose I was taking like three times more than the lethal dose and but Luckily for me, it it was a medication that my body was already accustomed to that had been prescribed to me. Okay. So at one point I did feel like the life in me was like coming out, seeping out of my body and floating up out of the door. The next day, um, I didn't know that at the time my partner had contacted my parents and had seen um, seen some of the, the things that I've been researching on the internet about how to okay. you know and he was extremely worried uh, and so even though he didn't have a great relationship with my parents at the time he contacted them and he was like you need to come and get her now or she is not going to live and so the next morning after i survived that experience um my mum just has just arrived and at my house and she started packing a bag and i mean i was so beaten down and so kind of like I just defeated that I was just watching her do it and mm. she just told me to get in the car and I got in the car and she took me to a clinic a psychiatric uh, uh and rehabilitation facility and they had a piano so I wrote the song Overdose okay um and they saved my life as did many people that were close to me saved my life and helped me get on the right medication I was finally diagnosed i worked through all of my previous trauma from a lot of the experiences in my life that we haven't even discussed but yeah uh, I worked through a lot of stuff and um it was a 10-year process and by the end of it it got to about was it 2018-2019 and I realized that I basically had an album that was documenting, it was almost like a book, like an mm. like autobiography of 10 years of my life. So my boyfriend, partner, was also the guy I was writing with for a lot of it. Um, and he was producing. So he, I would be too ill to do anything. And he would sort of almost pick me up and put me on the piano because he knew that that was the place that I could get my peace yes and get things out of myself and we worked together through thick and thin and um we realized that we had this album so i ordered it in order of succession Mm. um i should say that by the end you know this the last song on the album is called happiest girl in the universe and it's a happy end to the story because i became well and happy and came through a extremely dark period of my life but that you can and that you learn so much from it um and that there is so much light that comes at the end of that tunnel 
but even if even if the tunnel is telling you that there is never going to be light again so i wrote probably the darkest album of all time <laughs> um but it's also full of a lot of hope and yes. you know because there's darkness and the light and, yes it is um, and it's brutally honest so then in 2019 um i released happiest girl in the universe on an indie label and uh i bought the rights back for it so it's now all mine um and i've now skipping ahead uh finished writing my fourth record which is un- currently unnamed and i'm b- about to start putting it out and that's the end of that story <laughs> so there you go <laughs> wow such a beautiful story and i'm so grateful that you came out to the end in the light and uh, sending you positive energy for the challenges that you've been through. And um, thank you so much for your honesty and sharing. And I'm sure it'll help a lot of the listeners who are going through challenging and dark times. So thank you again for your authenticity. From zero to a three to four minute song, let's dive into your creative brain and creative mind. What is that process? Is it easy every time? I know a lot of it is motivated from the experiences that you've gone through and inspired by those stories. But is it a quick process? Is it easy? Let's dive into your creative world. Okay. So sometimes it's easy. It it can happen in 10 minutes, half an hour. Sometimes it's super easy. Sometimes I'll have a chorus for a year and I can't for the life of me get a verse or or middle eight for it. Sometimes things are, you'll get to a point and you hit a wall and you have to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing at that wall until you break it down. A lot of my best stuff is really when I'm just, I I press record on my phone and I have like an hour where I will just sit and play whatever the hell comes out of my fingers and whatever the hell comes out of my mouth. And a lot of the time my melody, my words come out with my melody, so I'll just be ad-libbing. And ad-libbing is something that I've always been really quite good at. And I'm not talking about like doing like, woo stuff. (laughs) I'm talking about like just coming out with stuff. Yes, yes, Off uh, off the cuff stuff. I much prefer working with other people because I love the social aspect of bouncing ideas around and going like, Mm -hmm. is this fucking crazy? Like, is is this the stupidest thing that I've ever come out with? Or is this this pure brilliance? Yes. But I do think that there is something... For me, like every time I go to write a song, I feel like it's not going to be good. It's it's something that I've never been able to remove because for me, like it's where, and maybe it's the same with painting. Maybe it's the same with all other creative things. There's and and I'm not talking about God because I'm I'm I don't believe in God. Totally fine if anyone else does, but yes. and but when I think about magic, that's where real magic for me lies. Mm-hmm. It's like something is coming from somewhere yes. and pass through you. It's hitting your heart center and then it's coming out of you. I don't feel like it almost comes from me. I feel like I'm a filter. Every time I go to write, I have that fear that. I'm going to write something terrible. But then I remind myself the practical side of it, which is 10 terrible ideas will often lead to one brilliant one. Yeah. So you got to be prepared to make as many mistakes as possible, you know, in quotation marks, mistakes. Yes. yes. You know, be not be scared for it to be shit, basically. Yeah, totally. Um, but, I, but I am always worried that the magic will disappear and that it will never come to me again. I'm with you. Amy, once you finish this conversation... And I recognize if I had to ask you this question in two days, two hours, two months, I know your answer will be different every time. But once you finish this conversation and you had to push play to five songs by other artists, 
What would those songs be and by whom? Oh, God. Um, okay. So <laughs> um, maybe, okay, so Joanna by uh, Scott Walker. Um, when Doves Cry by Quindon Tarvin. Tava, sorry, by Quindon Tava from Ro- the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. Uh, obviously, that's Prince's song, but it's his yeah. version that I would listen to. Uh, this Bitter Earth on the Nature of Daylight by Dina Washington uh, and Max Richter on the Blue Notebooks album. Um, the Wind by Cat Stevens and Ode to Divorce by Regina Spector. But I have an additional one. Okay. Uh, that's like a sort of swappy one. Anyone Else But You by Maldi Peaches. As a final message to the listening audience, what would you like to say? Just that I know uh, some of the stuff that I've talked about is quite can be quite heavy. What my dad always used to say to me, always used to help me, that it will all be all right in the end. And if it's not, not yet all right, then it's not yet the end, is what I would like to say. Yeah.